bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is April 19, 2022 podcast. We have a great episode for you today, an episode that will focus on helping you better understand the significance of some key accounting issues facing renewable energy investors. This episode is a must listen for all renewable energy developers and investors. Now, unlike other community development incentives that typically have seasoned developers and investors, renewable energy transactions often have developers and or investors who are new to tax incentives. Now for all investors, particularly those new to tax incentives, it's critically important that they understand the book accounting or gap that is generally accepted accounting principles implications of their proposed and existing investments. For developers seeking to raise capital from corporate investors, it is important that they understand the accounting needs and concerns of their investors and the book income and balance sheet implications of various renewable energy tax credit structures. Developers also need to understand the accounting implications on their own financial reporting of various project finance structures. Now, gaining an understanding of these accounting implications can be daunting because there is a wide range of renewable energy tax credit structures and consequently a wide range of accounting issues for both investors and developers. A good understanding of these issues can help a developer of a renewable energy project raise the optimum amount of tax credit equity and help both the developer and investor avoid any unwanted accounting surprises. In this podcast, we're going to review questions that Novogratik often gets from renewable energy developers and investors about the application of generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP to their tax credit structures. Now, will obviously not be an exhaustive list of GAAP issues. There's more on that front that we can discuss in a single podcast, but we do aim to give you an overview of the main or the key issues that you should be aware of as a developer and as an investor. I'm fortunate to have joining me today's discussion, my partner, Alvin Lee from our San Francisco office. Alvin works with many renewable energy clients, helping them understand how accounting issues could shape their business strategies and negotiations. Alvin is also a member of the Novogratic Gap Working Group. So he'll share some insights on some of the issues that the working group is trying to address. If you're ready, let's get started. Alvin, welcome to Tashkara Tuesday. Great to be here, Mike. So let's start with the basics. So I, in my intro, talked about the importance of rural energy developers and investors knowing about gap accounting. Why? Yeah, I think it's really important to understand gap accounting, primarily because these tax credit transactions are primarily structured to maximize the tax benefits to the partners as efficiently as possible. So oftentimes, book and gap issues aren't at the forefront of uh, issues investors and developers are looking at during the closing process. In addition, like you mentioned, transactions in renewable energy tax credit investments utilizes a variety of structures. And there's also even a lot of variation within those structures. The terms can be very different. And depending on how these investments are structured, could have a significant impact on how they're reported on by both the developer and the investor on the balance sheet and income statement. And quite often the unintended impact of some of these issues that we're going to talk about could become either a barrier or a hurdle for investors to invest. 
I think it talks about I was going to say, I think that's one of the critical points about what you're saying here is that, you know, you can be very focused on the economics, the cash benefits uh, of a transaction. And when I say cash benefits, I'm including the tax savings and focus on those economics. And as you pointed out that, you know, you can go and negotiate all of that, but when it comes to the book reporting of the transaction, the gap accounting, if you will well, treat that transaction in a certain way, and that'll affect how it gets reported on the balance sheet and the income statement. So maybe you can uh, share with the listeners, which is maybe what we were going to do before I interrupted you, how these renewable energy transactions can affect the company's balance sheet and how they can affect the income statement. Yes, that's right, Mike. I think, you know, when we're thinking about these investments for uh, generally accepted accounting principles, one of the first questions you have to ask as an investor or developer is whether or not a partner will consolidate the investment. So in general, when we think about accounting for investments, there's usually three methods that could be utilized. These are the consolidation method, the equity method of accounting, or the cost method. For the purposes of this discussion, we'll focus on the first two since the cost method is generally not applicable in, in most situations. Uh, now. Depending on whether you're using the consolidation equity method, this investment could be presented vastly differently on the balance sheet and income statement. Using the consolidation method, the partner or the reporting entity would consolidate all of the assets and liabilities of the underlying investments and projects on the balance sheet. In contrast, using the equity method of accounting, you would only record or report uh, a single investment line item on the balance sheet. And this could obviously look very different for both the developer or investor in this situation. Moving on to the income statement, similarly under the consolidation method, a reporting entity would include all the income expenses from the operations of the renewable energy investment or project on its income statement. So think electricity revenue and operation and maintenance expenses. Versus under the equity method of accounting, a reporting entity would only recognize income or loss from the investment as a single line item on the income statement. And I think here at this point, I, I want to make a quick, quick distinction here is that, and this, this is probably one of the first issues we'll run into, is that the income or loss from the equity method investment does not include the benefit of the tax credits. Rather, particularly for public companies, the tax credits are reported as a reduction in tax expense. So this creates kind of a problem for investors where we differentiate between pre-tax earnings and after-tax earnings. And so when we utilize the equity method of accounting, the flow-through losses are included as pre-tax earnings or what we call above the line. And then the tax credits are reported as a reduction in tax expense or below the line. And so we often refer to this as a geography issue. And this is just a example of how the method of accounting on these investments can vary quite significantly depending on whether or not the investor or developer has to consolidate the investment or use equity method of accounting. So let's start with that consolidation since it's often also referred to as when you consolidate your grossing up the balance sheet in the sense that rather than having a single line on the asset side of the balance sheet, you have you know, all the assets of the entity on the balance sheet on the asset side. Then you also have the liabilities uh, of the entity on the liability side. So your balance sheet is 
larger grossed up by the additional debt and then the additional assets in excess of your uh, equity investment. So when you're dealing with that and that consolidation question, how often are you finding investors wanting or not wanting consolidation? How often are you finding developers wanting or not wanting consolidation? Uh, or kind of said differently, in a typical case, investors will consolidate or the developer will consolidate or no one will consolidate. And what, you're, what are you saying in the transactions you're working on? Yeah, I think uh, that's right. I think we want to sort of look over and answer the question of who and who will not consolidate. And usually that question depends on you know, whether a developer or investor has a controlling financial interest. And so, you know, this, in this situation, obviously the economics and business terms of the transaction will dictate whether or not you consolidate. But the consequences is, you know, like you said, whether or not you'll be consolidating the assets and liabilities onto the balance sheet. So in general, typically with the transactions we work on, the developer or the sponsor has a controlling financial interest due to their ability to develop the assets and manage the asset. But so generally, I think that is the case. I would say 90% of the time, the developer has to consolidate. Now, structures do vary as we talked about. And I have definitely seen situations where uh, the voting rights between the developer and investor are shared equally. And so in this case, neither partner would consolidate the investment. And this is probably less frequent. So I'd probably think it would be less than five to 10% of the time. What are the, some of the reasons that developers and uh, investors may or may not want to consolidate? Sure. We'll start with the investors first. I think for the investors, I think the primary reason is there is sort of an administrative burden of having to layer in or include the activity of the underlying investments or project company. In addition to that, uh, the investors might not want to commingle the renewable activity with the primary business of the investor, which may be lending or investing. And on the developer side, I think there are both reasons that developers would want to consolidate and would not want to consolidate. I think for the reasons that they would, they would want to show the project assets on the books and consolidate the assets, essentially grossing up the assets. I think the in general, the developers believe this represents the business and economics of their business and reflects the expectation of residual ownership of these projects. Moving on to some reasons not to. So in general, developers also develop and construct these assets prior to contributing them or selling them to uh, a joint venture or a partnership entity. And so for gap purposes, when you consolidate these assets onto the balance sheet, these assets are generally stated at the initial cost basis rather than the sale price, which would be at fair market value. So essentially the, the transfer of assets to the joint venture or partnership entity, it becomes an intercompany transaction, which is eliminated. And so for that reason, the assets on the books would be stated at a lower cost basis, which might not be as, as favorable. In addition, I think both the developers and investors don't necessarily see the economic purpose of showing assets on a cost basis rather than uh, its expected fair value basis. One more reason might, why the developer might not want to consolidate the investment is that when the assets and liabilities of the investment is included on the balance sheet, you also have to include the non-controlling interest of the investor. 
And so in this case, that could present an additional burden and administrative cost to account for that not controlling interest. Okay, Alvin. So it sounds like most, in most cases, the investor is not consolidating and they'll be using the equity method. Now, in the context of the equity method, there is this concept of hypothetical liquidation at book value or HLBV. Uh, and that issue comes into play with the equity method. So I'm sure some of our listeners who have heard of annuity transactions have heard about HLBV, but many probably have not. So maybe you could describe for our listeners what HLBV is uh, and how it relates to the equity method of accounting. Sure. I think I'll start with talking about the traditional equity method of accounting methodology in which income from the investments is allocated to the partners generally based off of uh, profit and loss allocation percentages. Now, this becomes a little bit more difficult, if not impossible, for renewable energy transactions as they have varying profit and loss percentages over the life of the investment. And so the industry has adopted uh, a hypothetical liquidation at book value method, which is prescribed by the accounting standards codification in situations where a liquidation-based approach may be more appropriate than a traditional equity method of accounting. Renewable energy tax credit investments quite often have disproportional allocation of cash distributions, cash contributions, and varying profit and loss allocations, as I mentioned, which makes the applying the traditional method of equity method of accounting problematic. HLBV uses a balance sheet approach and in summary incorporates this three-step process. The first step is we assume the assets of the partnership that sold are sold at gap net book value as of the reporting date. Next, we look at the liquidation provisions of the operating agreement and allocate the hypothetical gain or loss to each partner on top of each partner's respective tax capital accounts. Should we get noted here, the liquidation provisions can vary quite wide, widely giving uh, a, a variety of different results. Next, in the last step three, you, we assume a liquidation in each partner's capital account, including the allocated gain or loss, in order to get each partnership's capital account to zero. And the amount that is required to liquidate the partner's capital account is equal to the HLBV carrying value of each partner's interest. So as I just kind of went over here, the HLBV calculation blends in both tax and gap rules and methodologies which makes the calculation quite challenging. It involves underlying tax capital account mechanics, which are complex in itself, and the liquidation waterfall provisions, which can be difficult to calculate, particularly if they include targeted yield provisions. So in summary, I think it's, it's a complex method of accounting to implement, and due to the variances and differences in liquidation provisions, the operating agreements, there could be unintended, unintended consequences that can impact the income statement of the investor utilizing equity method of accounting. So how, how do you find this concept of HLBV affecting transaction deal structures? It seems, you know, cause obviously as you point out, you have to go beyond merely looking at your profit and loss allocations. You have to look at, at how assets would be distributed to the partners, how income would be allocated and assets distributed if you were to liquidate and you're doing this uh, calculation as of the end of every year. 
how does that end up affecting some of the transaction terms or deal structures? Yeah, I think to start off with, I've definitely seen situations where just the actual complexity and unpredictability of the flow through losses become such a significant issue or problem for the investors that may be sensitive to book or gap earnings or earnings per share that decide not to invest or continue to invest in these transactions. I think dealing with these issues upfront definitely helps mitigate some of the heartburn involved in understanding the income and earnings profile from these investments. Uh, some of the things you can do that could impact the structure is looking at the liquidation provisions. So the liquidation mechanics drive the HLBB, HLBB results. So drafting liquidation provisions in such a way that could maybe have a more favorable or predictable result could be something that could be done during the negotiation process. Obviously, you can only modify this to the extent that uh, the economic and commercial terms of the transaction are still as intended or as desired. The next thing that can be done as well is to manage or the tax allocations in such a way that the tax capital accounts, which flow into the HOBB calculations, can yield more favorable results. Again, this is also limited to you know, what you can actually want to do from an actual business and tax outcome that is desired from the transaction. That's an important point is this is affecting the economic rights of the parties. <laughs> so that is a factor. There's the gap accounting, but there's also you know, the different risk sharing that you have to negotiate. So I want to ask you in a moment, what other gap uh, accounting issues that are hot topic right now? But before, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts. You said earlier about the geography issue and tax credits being below the line as a general matter. Uh, but there's also the concept of the deferral method with respect to ITCD, where you end up, you know, reducing the basis of the asset by the amount of the credits. And maybe you could share, you know, any uh, thoughts you have about the interaction of the deferral method with the HLBV calculations and the geography issue. Yeah, I think the deferral method helps eliminate the geography issue and such that the tax credit is recognized as a reduction of the investment. But the investment itself still needs to be continued to be accounted for using the HLBV method. And so in this situation, depending on the timing of the tax credits and the timing of the tax benefits, the uh, reduction of the investment by the ITC would actually reduce the investment such that you would recognize a gain for HLBB purposes when you look at the liquidation provisions. And the liquidation provisions usually allocate majority of the gain to the partners using residual percentages. And so there could be certain situations where there's a large allocation to the investor such that the investor would recognize a large gain upfront during the earlier years of their investment and then have to re recognize write downs in the investment later in the life of the investment. So this isn't necessarily a bad thing in terms of geography, but then it creates this unpredictability and often a uh, weird result when it comes to the earnings profiles of these investments, which, which could create confusion and an administrative burden for the investors yeah. uh, to account for. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it just really emphasizes the importance of understanding uh, what approach is going to be used and what the transaction structures are, the deal terms and running those financial models, which I know you spent a lot of time doing. 
that aren't just the, the after-tax yields of both cash and tax benefits, but also focusing on what the book earning profile is and not just cumulatively, but the cumulative part's probably easy. <laughs> it's the uh, annual impacts that become more challenging. And then obviously once you've started, you have to do the periodic updates of the HLBV calculations. And how often do you find those calculations have to be done for most investors? Quite often, I would probably say the majority of the time, the investors would need to uh, report that on a periodic basis, whether on a quarterly or on a monthly basis. So we do spend a lot of time working with both the developers and investors on HLBB calculations for reporting purposes. So I did say I wanted to go beyond balance sheet income statement issues. So what other gap issues? I know there are a lot out there, so maybe just uh, touch upon a couple of gap issues that are hot topics right now for uh, investors or developers. Yeah, I think the main thing on my mind is the new lease standard under ASCII 842. This is, will probably be the uh, biggest impact for a lot of our clients. Uh, and this really, this new guidance really impacts operating leases for lessees that will now have to record an on-balance sheet right of use asset and a lease liability where previously they only had to record a rent expense. This is relevant for commercial or utility scale projects where the land is not owned by the project company, but rather there's usually a long-term agreement to lease the site or land on which the project sits. These leases historically, as I said, recorded are as operating leases were required to be recorded on balance sheet. And there are also new disclosure requirements around the lease asset liability and lease expense that would need to be included. And this standard is effective for the year 2022. So it's definitely something our clients should be looking at right now. Well, I don't think this podcast would be a complete, uh, at least a gap podcast would be complete without talking about revenue recognition. <laughs> so what are some of the core issues around revenue recognition that you think our listeners should know about? Yeah, I think it also goes back to the new lease standards. So in renewable tr energy transactions, the electricity that's generated, it's sold to an off-taker by the producer. And usually these contracts are structured as power purchase agreements. So anytime you evaluate these contracts for revenue, the first step usually is determining whether the contract is a lease. And this usually needs to an evaluation on whether or not the contract conveys the right to control the use of the property. So historically, these PPAs have been under the old lease standards, have been classified as operating leases. But this could change under the new lease standards. And so that would sort of move you to step two, which is to recognize revenue recognition on these power purchase agreements under the new revenue and recognition stand under ASCII 606. And so without getting into too deeply, I think there's a lot of new guidance there that, that needs to be evaluated that could be impactful this year as a lot of these contracts historically that would be under the old lease standards now would need to be accounted for under the new revenue, revenue recognition guidance. In addition, you know, there are other, with renewable energy, there are other forms of revenue including sale of renewable energy certificates, various state and local incentives in the form of rebates or production-based incentives. So all of these will need to be evaluated under the new lease, new lease and accounting standards for revenue recognition. In addition, I also help a lot of developers who sell solar energy systems. So these renewable energy projects quite often are sold during various stages of development, development 
from notice to proceed effectively when construction could begin, substantial completion, all the way through commercial operation. Under the new revenue recognition standard, they use uh, sort of a new model, which looks at performance obligations. And so the timing of when you recognize revenue has been a big issue with the developers we work on who sell these solar energy systems. So uh, thank you very much for that. And speaking of revenue recognition, that's a good segue into the next topic that I have, and that has to do with what I mentioned earlier about the Nevergradic Gap Working Group and our partner, Brad Elphick, out of our Greater Georgia office, uh, heads up that working group. But I know you've been spending a lot of time working with Brad as part of an effort of our Gap Working Group on the tax treatment of renewable energy investments. So maybe you could share with the listeners uh, what the focus of this working group is and how it might be beneficial if we could get the get the uh, emerging issues task force to move forward in ways that we're uh, trying to uh, get them to move. Yeah, I think the one thing that's been available to specifically to the low-income housing tax credit investments is an alternative method of accounting, what we call the proportional amortization method. In summary, the investment is allowed to be amortized over the tax credit period based on future expected benefits. So this is very different from what we see in the renewable energy tax credit transactions we're reporting this under hypothetical liquidation and book value. And another main issue that this also solves is the geography issue we were talking about earlier. So currently our working group has been heavily involved in working with the EITF or the Emerging Issues Tax Force to and its consideration on expanding the guidance and its availability to be used for other community development tax credits, and including renewable energy tax credits. And so this would significantly change if accounting for these type of investments, which would solve a lot of the unpredictability and unfavorable accounting that could be a barrier or a hurdle for investors. And so we're very excited to working on this issue. I think there's still a lot that needs to be done, but looking forward to how this could develop. So let me try to summarize what the potential impact if the EITF does move to expand proportional accounting to a renewable energy tax credit ITC transaction. And assuming that it would not only expand the eligibility, but that the transaction itself will also qualify. And I'm not going to go into all those details here, but if proportional amortization was available, uh, then it seems to me that under guidance, if you're using the deferral method, you're basically reducing the cost of the asset uh, by the amount of the credit uh, for the most part. And then as a consequence, above the line, you're going to end up reporting income, whatever your kind of net economic uh, profit is in the transaction over the course of your investment. However, that reporting of income can be very lumpy, <laughs> if you will. The earning profile, as you called it, you know, you know, could be certainly not level, but it would be uh, above the line and you wouldn't have a below the line effect, but you would have to go through and do HLBV calculations monthly or quarterly, or certainly with a high degree of frequency as you're making those calculations. But that, that as opposed to doing it that way, 
there would be this alternative, this alternative approach, proportional amortization, which would basically take all that activity that's moving its way above the line and put it below the line inside the tax provision and do it in a proportional amortization way such that the periodic HLBD calculations wouldn't need to be done and it would have a much more predictable effect on your income tax expense. So I just said a lot there. <laughs> How did I do? <laughs> very, very good. I think, you know, there's so much to unpack there. I would definitely encourage listeners, if they're very interested in this, to go back to the recent podcast you did on January 8th with Brad. And I think you walked through uh, a lot of the criteria and issues in, in very high detail. And I agree this would have a, a major impact on how these investments are accounted for and would be a significant benefit to investors if it can be utilized. I would just encourage our listeners who are interested in learning more about the working group. So not covering just renewable energy, they're also addressing trying to make uh, source amortization available to more types of community development credits like historic tax credits, like the new market tax credits. And if you're interested, please email Alvin or me or my partner, Brad Elphick. Uh, we'd love to have uh, more members of the working group. So thank you, Alvin, for sharing your insight on the podcast. And I'm sure that uh, some listeners are going to want to reach out to you. We covered a lot and kudos to all the listeners who are still listening when we're talking about gap issues, but <laughs> you saw that you recognize the benefit in understanding the gap issues. If you're a developer on how to raise capital. Bet, bet, best raise capital and report on your own balance sheet and your own income statement as accurately as possible and also for investors to avoid any uh, surprises. But Alvin, please share your email address. Sure. You can reach me at alvin.lee, that's L-E-E, at noboco.com. Great. Thank you very much. And hang around for our off-mic section. But to our listeners, I do invite you to register for the Novogratz 2022 Spring Renewable Energy and Environmental Tax Credits Conference. That's going to be held in Denver. That's May 19th and 20th, just a month away. And for a separate registration fee, we also offer a pre-conference project finance primer workshop. You can attend both the workshop and the conference for a chance to learn more about renewable energy finance, gap topics and strategies, and obviously network and learn about a lot of other issues as well. I'll include a registration link in today's show notes. And on the topic of upcoming podcast episodes, next week, I will work with my partner and income limits expert, Thomas Stagg, on a podcast episode to discuss the release of the fiscal year 2022 income limits. We'll go into detail during that podcast about some of the most important storylines related to those income limits. You can make sure that you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Transfer Tuesday podcast. Simply go to www.nivoco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Task Work Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Now, I'm pleased to reach our off-mic section where listeners can get some off-topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So, Alvin, I always love thinking about productivity hacks or, you know, some pr go-to productivity app things of that nature. So I wanted to ask you if you had a go-to productivity app or hack. Yeah, I think time management's always been a focus for me. 
But as I get older, I find it energy management is actually more of an important topic for me. Uh, 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 I think, you know, with time, you're always limited, but energy is renewable. Sorry for the pun there. <laughs> and I recently watched a UC Berkeley lecture entitled The Science of Energy Management, which focused on helping you schedule your day depending on your chronotype, essentially, which is whether you're a morning voice person or a night owl or something in between. And so for myself, my peak hour is actually around 9 to 2 p.m. And then again to 6 to 9 p.m. So I try to manage my schedule a little bit so that I do my work where I need to be more focused and, you know, whether I'm solving logical problems or not during those times and try to schedule meetings and conferences outside of those hours. So that's been uh, very helpful for me. And how do you decide which you are? Is there a, like an online test you take or something? Or they ask you a series of questions or? Yeah, in general, it breaks down. There, there are certain tests online where they could determine whether or not you're more of a morning person or a night owl. For most of us, we kind of already know. <laughs> but what is, what is interesting, though, is it, it definitely does show you when you get your energy and when you kind of have a downtime. There's different peaks of when you have more ability to focus and, and better at fighting distractions, which is a difficult thing to do. So do share a link or two that we can uh, put on the uh, website that we can share within our show notes that we can share with listeners. So those that want to uh, follow up and find out uh, more about that, but I know that I do. So I'll give <laughs> that link and say what I can learn. Sure. I believe the lecture is actually online. So I'll share that link and right. uh, you can watch for yourself. So now that uh, given that we're in the midst of spring, uh, it's spring, you know, is a time to do spring cleaning. <laughs> uh, are there any, uh, spring cleaning or organization tips that you have to share? Yeah, I try to keep my house as tidy as possible, which is uh, a little difficult with kids at home. There are three and five and, you know, I'm, I'm actually a, a Mary Kondo fan and her methodology is, you know, if the item doesn't spark joy in your life, then you should get rid of it. But this is very hard to do with my kids as uh, everything sparks joy with them, at least for an hour, <laughs> where they find something else to be interested in. <laughs> oh, very funny. So another uh, favorite of mine is something that the one thing COVID-19 ended up getting me back on course doing is doing a lot more reading, as well as I'm a big Kindle fan and big Audible fan. So I guess I should say reading as well as listening. But is there a book? or two, but is there at least a one book that you think everyone should read? Sure. I think Dune immediately comes to mind. Now, Dune the movie this year was nominated for 10 Oscars and won a lot of them. But as the old adage goes, the book is always better. And uh, I've been needing to reread that, re that book for a long time. One of my all-time favorites and probably widely considered to be one of the best classic science fiction books of all time. So I definitely would recommend that if you haven't read it, uh, because the book was better than the movie. <laughs> why would you choose that title? Would you read it? Why, why would you think someone should read Dune? I think it is a very interesting, you know, if you're interested in sci-fi, but in addition to that also weaves in a lot of politics, religion, ecology, technology in a setting of a faraway planet. And so I think it's, it's a very fun read, I think for myself. And I've, I've reread that book many times. So I think it's a must read. Got it. 
I'll add it to my list. I have not read it. It's been on my list before. I'll move it up. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you again, Alvin, for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate you making the time, particularly on tax day, April 18th. So I know you're really busy. So I appreciate you taking on tax day to make this recording. And then to our listeners, I'm Mike Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.